congregation, this afternoon we confess Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, which is the first Lord's Day in the part of our sins and misery. So after confessing our comfort, our only comfort in life and death in Lord's Day 1, we confess here in Lord's Day 2 as follows from the Word of God. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Jesus teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. So far, Lord's Day 2. Brothers and sisters in the Lord and boys and girls belonging to him too then, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy this afternoon. Because we step right from that beautiful Lord's Day about our only comfort in life and death. Lord's Day 1 to the part of the catechism about our sins and misery. And with this part of the catechism, we, as it were, end up in a deep, dark pit. Who would want to be in a pit like that? The Reformed Church has often been accused of shoving people into a deep pit with this part of the catechism in particular, talking about your sins and misery sounds so depressing how great your sins and misery are even. But for Christians, it's not depressing to talk about their sins and misery because seeing how great our sins and misery really are means seeing how great God's grace in Jesus Christ really is, how good it is to belong to Jesus Christ. That's the theme for the sermon this afternoon. Seeing our sins and misery means seeing how good it is to belong to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll see three things here. How deep, how deeply we've fallen, how helpless we are in ourselves in the second place, and thirdly, how great God's grace in Jesus Christ then. First then, how deeply we've fallen. In that psalm we read before, Psalm 130, the psalmist speaks of a situation that's even worse than a dark pit. At least if you think of a pit like the one Joseph ended up being thrown into by his brothers, the pit Joseph was thrown into was deep and dark, and he couldn't get out of it on his own, but at least there was no water in that pit. The depths, the, the psalmist laments about in Psalm 130 consists of water, apparently, deep, deep water. It's as if he has fallen and sunk down into the ocean and still sinking, and he can't work his way up. He keeps sinking. The depths of the sea or the ocean in the Bible usually have to do with Death, being cut off from God. 
in the deep depths, your life comes to an end. It's hopeless for you. And that's what Psalm 130 wants us to consider, just like Lord's Day 2. The depths of our sins and misery. Because of our sins and sinfulness, we're destined to sink to the depths. Destined to be cut off from God. We're not just talking about a few hitches or a problem in our lives which are fine for the rest. Sin and misery means we are separated from God. We are destined for death. We are dead in ourselves. You can't go any deeper than that. How did we end up so deep? Psalm 130 is different from many other psalms of lamentation in other psalms of lamentation, you often have the mention of a certain problem which the psalmist is complaining about to God, sickness or, or uh, depression or enemies or so who are harassing the psalmist. But this, in this psalm, the, the problem is interior, is inside the psalmist himself, his own life. He speaks about iniquities, in this psalm. The Hebrew word used for that means deviations, like to deviate from a marked out path or road. You ignore the marks and you go your own way. You deviate from the way. In relation to God, that means consciously deviating from the covenant way that God has laid out for, for us. And you realize that to do that means to ignore God, it means to break the relationship with Him, and that's no small thing, no small problem that can easily be fixed again and repaired. No, you broke trust with the God of life, and not just once, but often. Think of the law of God, also mentioned in Lord's Day 2. It's wonderful if you hear that summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Wonderful requirements to love. Who wouldn't want to love? God wants us to live in good relationship with himself and with others. He has high expectations of us. He says to us, love but the higher you are, the harder you fall. For listen to the following question and answer of Lord's Day 2. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor, it says in the Catechism, that I'm created and called to love but I end up with hatred in myself, in my heart, instead. What a contrast. Like heaven and hell. God's expectations of me are so high. Love. But I've fallen so deeply. Hate. Now, to hate sounds like quite an emotional thing to us. 
as if you have an enormous dislike for someone. You can't stand a certain person. And maybe we don't feel that way all that often, but hating here has a special meaning. Hating has to do with choosing. Do you choose for yourself or do you allow room for somebody else in your heart? Loving God means then that He is always number one for you. That your ultimate desire is to make Him happy. And that you always take seriously what He says. That's love. So think about that hating again then. It means putting yourself higher or first instead of God, your own pleasure, and then actually turning your back on God if it doesn't seem very pleasant to do what He asks you in a certain situation. Do you recognize that in your life? Do you recognize that in your life too? How often is God really first and foremost in our minds and hearts, in our deeds? How often do we truly place our neighbor's needs on a par with our own? We're so inclined to put ourselves above everyone and everything else. And notice, congregation, that answer five speaks about I again. First person, singular, I. Lord's Day 1 used that first person. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that personal tone continues here when it comes to the confession of our sins and misery. If your faith is real, it's also going to be personal. It's about entrusting yourself totally, body and soul, both in life and death, to Jesus Christ. And it's about you personally accepting everything He wants to give you. See, in the, in the church, it's not just about generalities without you and I being personally involved and affected. Here, it's about you personally. Here, when the gospel is proclaimed, it's about you personally. God directs His attention to you personally. And so when we confess our sins and misery here this afternoon, we're not talking generalities either. It's not about sin in general, misery in general. It's about my sins and my misery. I can't hide in the mass of sinners. I can't avoid the personal reality by saying, well, everybody's a sinner, aren't they? Or we're all born this way, we can't help it. No, I am the problem. I deviate from the way God has set out for us in His law. I do the opposite of what God wants. I put myself number one. I'm responsible for that. God has the right to deal with me personally concerning that. The thing is, I need to own my sins personally and realize the personal consequences of that. And that iniquity can so, be so deeply embedded in me that I think I can't help it but that doesn't lessen my responsibility, but it just increases it. You also see that personal approach in Psalm 130, congregation. Out of the depths, 
I have cried to you, O Lord. And then the psalmist asks, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's a rhetorical question, question with an obvious answer. And the implication is then that I don't look at others here, but at myself. If God would mark my iniquities, I'd be sunk. Marking iniquities means reckoning your sins to you. No keeping track, taking it off. He'd be busy taking it off. Keeping track of the bad choices you make in thought, word, or deed and confronting you with the consequences of those choices. Each time, do you choose for me or for yourself? Each of us understands that if God marked our iniquities, we'd be toast. Each one of us falls so far, far short of the love God wants from us for himself and the love he wants us to have in our hearts for our neighbors. So far short of that that he isn't able to go on with us anymore. He can't go on with us. And that's the end for us. That's the total end for us. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls too, that's how deep the issue of our sins and misery goes. We can't talk our way out of our personal responsibility here. We're all called to account here in the light of God's law of love. And then we all learn to personally confess that we can't have a relationship with God with those sins of ours, with our heart being the way it is. I'm in a deep pit, in other words. I'm drowning in my guilt before God. That's how deep each one of us has fallen. We come to the second point of the sermon, how helpless we are then too. How can it be that we've sunk so deep, congregation? If you'd ask people around us in general, I think a lot of them would tell you you're crazy to think of yourself being in the depths like that because of your iniquities. Why would you say that about yourself? Come on, it's not that bad. Don't let yourself be talked into a deep, dark hole like that. But we don't just have to think about people around us talking like that. We often think that way too that it can't be that bad with me. If I judge myself negatively like that, then I'm going to write myself off. And how can I go on in life? If I see myself in the pit in the depths of Psalm 130, then I'm going to die. I'm dead. Then I can't go on. But the wonderful thing is that the I who confessed about himself or herself in answer five, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That same I first also confessed in Lord's day one that he or she belongs to Jesus Christ. Don't for one minute think that the I in answer five forgot even for a moment that he or she belongs to Jesus Christ. For the depth of answer five, I'm inclined to sin 
I'm inclined to hate God and my neighbor. That answer can only by, be accepted, truly be accepted by those who belong to Jesus Christ. You see the same thing in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. And that's a cry for God's grace by someone who knows the Lord and His grace. You're in the dark depths and you know it's your own fault. And you don't have a leg to stand on with God. But that's not the end. It's just the beginning. Because now you know what God's grace promise to you is too. And you see, from the bottom of the pit, all you can do is cry out for help, for mercy. Imagine, you know, you're hiking through the bush here somewhere up toward Tobermory, and you fall into a deep, deep hole, and there are big holes there. You fall into one of those holes. You're first going to try to get out by yourself. You're looking around for footholds on the side of that hole so you can climb out. You look for tree roots, branches, so you can pull yourself up. But then when you ascertain there are no footholds in this hole, no roots to pick yourself, to pull yourself up by, then there's only one thing you can do yet, and that is cry out for help. And then you hope there's somebody in the neighborhood who can maybe throw you a rope or reach out to you with a long stick and haul you up. The thing is, you can, you can only cry out for help when you realize there's no way you can get out by yourself. And it's the same with the spiritual pit. And that's what they're the, the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 130. You only cry out to God if you see there is no way you can save yourself from your sins and misery. Only in the deep, deep depths, deep, deep depths, does the cry for God's grace truly come from your heart then if you realize there is no other way, then that cry comes from inside you. And that's why, congregation, that's why it's so important for us to begin there in the depths. Not to torment ourselves, to be negative about ourselves, but to accept that this is our condition before God in ourselves. We can't keep parts of ourselves with which we think we might be able to appease God. We don't have any roots by which to pull ourselves up to God. There's no footholds in this pit to support us so we can climb up to God. Nothing. If we try, we're only going to fall back to the depths again. Only if we completely stop looking for footholds and roots, stop looking to get ourselves out of those depths, will things go well with God again? Only when we accept we're completely and totally helpless at the very bottom of the pit 
will we really truly learn to expect our salvation from God and His grace? Only then. So those depths mentioned in Psalm 130 are really the depths of your faith. And you cannot miss those depths if you're a believer. Because only if you truly see yourself as a lost sinner will you stretch your hands out to God to be saved. Only then. Only if you realize you can't expect anything at all from yourself will you also cry out to God for grace. And you realize this isn't something to become depressed about then either. This is consciousness of guilt, which we're talking about here, which does not paralyze you. You know, guilt can paralyze people, but this is consciousness of guilt that isn't going to paralyze you. Often, sometimes happens, right? You realize you did wrong, you should have and could have acted totally differently, and then you get stuck in that but. But, but I couldn't help it. But others have done the same or worse. But, and then you just end up going in circles looking for footholds or roots. And you, that's all you do. You see your sin okay, but you understand that you offended God by what you thought or did, but you keep thinking you can improve yourself as long as you keep trying. As long as you keep trying. And see, then you have not gone deep enough. You haven't hit the bottom of the pit yet. Then you haven't learned to let everything in you go and give yourself completely over to God's grace. You feel some guilt, but you ultimately still feel you're better than you really are in yourself before God. And then the feeling of guilt remains actually somewhere in there, and you'll be paralyzed by that. It'll come back every time. And that's because you haven't really seen how helpless you are in yourself. And you need to see that to really come to your God to really and truly accept His grace promised you in Jesus Christ. And that, so we arrive at the last point of the sermon this afternoon, how great God's grace is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the wonder of Psalm 130 is that the psalmist shows that there is a way out of the depths, out of the pit. There's a way out. You've gone deep, deep, completely cut off from life, dark, nothing left for you to hold on, and then you cry out to God. Listen how emphatically, how exuberantly even the psalmist speaks in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Intense longing for the Lord can only come from the utter depths. 
the very bottom of the pit. Only then is it truly intense longing for the Lord. When all hope in ourselves or in something else is dashed, then hope in God is revived and real. Hope in God as the only one who can save you. And that hope shines above the depths of Psalm 130. When you realize how deep you've sunk in yourself, you also realize what a glorious, glorious hope you have in God, the God of grace in Jesus Christ. The psalmist confessed the substance of that hope in verse 4. He says, but there is forgiveness with you. And verse 7, for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. Hope for grace and forgiveness can only be found with the Lord God. And when you cry out to him in your helplessness, then you receive his forgiveness and mercy too. And what the psalmist didn't know, we know now. You receive that forgiveness and mercy through Jesus Christ crucified and from him alone. So congregation, it hasn't necessarily been a, an easy afternoon here. It's not nice to see that you haven't done and can't do what God requires in his law of love. And it's painful to see that you can't help yourself. You're at the bottom. It's painful to have to let go of everything which you figured you might receive approval from God for. It's awful to realize that of yourself you're, you're at the bottom of a pit, but all those sad and painful discoveries, if you face them, deliver something wonderful to you. They focus your hope completely on God, on His forgiveness and mercy in Christ. And hoping, hoping, you know, is what that waiting in Psalm 130 is about. I wait for the Lord. In the, in the depths of your sin and misery, you wait for the Lord so He can save you. You're not even trying anything else. You're looking to Him, waiting for Him, hoping in Him. Waiting is not something we like to do, is it? We like to get what we want right away nowadays. It's the kind of society we live in. We want it, and we want it now. It's not how it is with faith, though, necessarily. We don't just get forgiveness and grace dispensed to us when we want it, like food ordered at the takeout window at McDonald's or so. God doesn't come with his salvation when we order it at the mic. We learn that when we've fallen into the depths of the depths. That receiving forgiveness and grace isn't something that we control and that comes about the way we want it to. On our time, no, we give ourselves over to the Lord God and it can only come from His side, in His way, in His time. We have to learn to wait on the Lord. And see, that's why it's good that there's that part about our sins and misery in the setup of the catechism then too. 
only three Lord's days out of 53 are sins and misery. And maybe you think, let's take a deep breath and squeeze our eyes shut and get those three Lord's days over with as quick as we can. Get them over with. But if you think that way, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss what actually is part and parcel of faith, namely that waiting for God. In other words, no longer trying to haul yourself out of the pit, but realizing you totally need God's grace. You totally need Jesus Christ crucified, and only in Him can your life really begin anew and continue and also end here comforted. And you realize then, too, that that waiting isn't sitting back with your arms folded and seeing if it's going to happen sooner or later. That comfort. No, waiting in the Bible is an active thing. And you sense that in Psalm 130. Intense longing. You know, you see that a wait for the Lord more than watchers for the morning. Watchers for the morning, they, they go up on the, on the battlements the towers, and they, they check every time again to see if it's getting light. It's crying out for deliverance. It's stretching out your hands to God as, as far as possible to get a hold of that rope ladder God lets down to you. Waiting for the Lord is work. It's hard work. Hard work to keep seeing God in Christ as the only Savior of your life, your only hope. We learn to do that work in the section of the Catechism about our sins and misery. So we shouldn't skip this part, go through it hastily. In this section, we learn something which our faith can't do without. We ended up in a deep pit through our sins and we can't get out of the depths on our own at all. But God went that deep, too, to haul us out of that pit. He came down to us in Jesus Christ, to the bottom of the pit. Greater than our powerlessness is the power of His love. Greater than the experience of the pain of our guilt is the joy we experience in Christ's work and much greater than the shock of how lost we are in ourselves is the intense relief that we might, by God's grace, belong to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.